Welcome to the Tuesday Theology edition of the Scottsdale Podcast. At Scottsdale, one of our core values is studying God's Word. So through this theology class, our goal is to equip our people with the right knowledge of God. Enjoy, and we hope that you grow in your knowledge of God and application of His Word. Uh, let's get started tonight. We'll start with a word of prayer and we'll get into our study. Fathers, we uh, come before you. We thank you for your goodness and your grace. We thank you for... Uh, your word and the truth that it holds for us. Uh, Father, tonight as we come before you, we thank you for the church. Uh, and we thank you that Christ, uh, being the head of the church, leads us and guides us each and every day. So tonight as we come together, would you open our hearts and our minds to the truth of your word that we may gain greater understanding into the things that we've studied this week and that we might uh, leave from this place with a greater appreciation of uh, what you have established uh, in, in bringing out and calling the church uh, to yourself. So uh, bless us in our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, uh, looking uh, at a new, uh, a new section in our Bible doctrine study, looking at the doctrine of the church, and tonight starting our study with uh, looking at the nature of the church and answering uh, several questions. One, how do we recognize the true church? What is the purpose and purposes of the church? Uh, you know, what makes a church pleasing or less, more pleasing or less pleasing to God? So we'll kind of walk through some of those things. But uh, by definition, uh, Grudem tells us that the church is a community of what? All what believers? All true believers. Uh, for what time? All, all time, okay? Uh, and so we find, uh, you know, several scripture passages that were given there, but 1 Ephesians 5, 25, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Uh, and we see that the word church that's used in that applies to all those who Christ died to redeem, uh, both those uh, from the Old Testament and those from the New. Remember that Old Testament saints we're looking forward to the promise of the Messiah, right? And th those of us who are on this side of the cross look back to the finished work of Christ on the cross for our redemption. And so uh, the church is, is all true believers of all times uh, in that way. Uh, one of the things, and, and one of the things that helps us understand that is the uh, word used for church or the things that we see in, in the Old Testament uh, people assembled for the purpose of worshiping God. They, they called uh, a gathering of the assembly. They summoned the assembly together. And uh, Gruden tells us and shows us that that word is ecclesiazo, uh, to summon uh, an assembly. Uh, and then we find that, uh, that the New Testament refers to the church as the ecclesia. And so uh, as you look at that, uh, that is speaking of both Old Testament uh, people and New Testament saints as well. Uh, Grudem says that the New Testament authors uh, spoke about the Old Testament saints uh, and referred to uh, the Old Testament saints of Israel uh, as the church as well. And so we see it's a community of all true believers of all time. Now, Grudem says that the church is both visible and what? Invisible, okay. Uh, the invisible church is the church as what? As, as who sees it? Okay. Why is uh, the invisible church the church as God sees it? What makes that the invisible church? Because he's the only one that can look into the heart of a person and see if they're a true believer. Okay, Exa exactly. God is the only one who knows the true spiritual condition of each one of us in this room. 
He is the one who knows uh, about our salvation and whether we have come to a saving faith in Christ. And so when we look at the invisible church, it says God sees it. Uh, in 2 Timothy 2, 19, the Lord, um, uh, the Lord knows those who are His. He knows them. Uh, and so we see that. Uh, the visible church is the church as who sees it? As Christians see it, all right? As Christians see it. Uh, and so uh, it's, it's the way we see it on earth. Uh, what is the, the visible church and the way that we look at the church? What is that based upon? What do we look for to show indication of the church? Okay, a lot of times works, all right? Um, they, you know, Jesus said they'll know you by your what? It says he'll know you by our love. So we can see that there's one, one of the things that they look for is a outward profession of Christ in their life, that they're, they're professing Jesus Christ to be their personal Lord and Savior, but they're not only professing, they're following that up with a witness to the world, Right. And so, yes, it's not so much in our doing, but it's in the way that we live our life to the glory of God and that we live for His service, that we're serving Him in that way. So the visible church is what the world looks in and what other believers uh, see. Uh, Grudem kind of laid out the fact that as we think about this visible church, he gave several passages of Scripture. 2 Timothy 2, 17 and 19 was one. And he talked about um, uh, Hymenus and Philetus who fell away, uh, who departed from the truth. He looked at Acts 20, uh, 29 and 30 that talked about uh, the departure of savage wolves. Um, After my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, uh, not sparing the flock. He looked at the words of Jesus Christ, uh, telling them to beware of false teachers. So one of the things that he said about the visible church is that the visible church, yes, can be made up of those who have truly professed faith in Christ, but it can be made up of people who are apart from Christ as well, right? Uh, only God knows their heart. Uh, and so we can look at those things. Um, as we looked at the chapter, uh, Augustine said of the visible church that there are many, many sheep are without and many wolves are within, Right. And so there are many who God has, is calling to himself that are outside the walls of the church. Now, I want to clear this up though, right? So there are many who may be part of God's family that he has chosen and called and he is drawing them into himself and they have not yet come to be a part of the church, right? So they're outside of the church. Now, when we become a believer and we profess our faith in Christ, it's important for us to be part of a what? church. Uh, you know, it's because Christ died and gave himself up for this very thing. And so it's important for us to engage and be involved with other believers in the church. And so, uh, you know, but many can come into the church, as Jesus said, they are, they are wolves in what? Sheep's clothing, right? And they are lead, trying to lead others away from the truth. And so, you know, we have to be careful in that way. But uh, Augustine said that, uh, how can we know who is truly a Christian? Uh, Calvin said that we don't need to be what? You remember? 
overly skeptical, okay? We don't need to look at everyone with this skepticism and try to determine their heart, okay? Uh, and looking at that, we must make charitable judgment, he said, whereby we recognize as members of the church all who by confession of faith, example of life, and by partaking of the sacraments, profess the same God and Christ with us, okay? Now, in that, we have to understand that along that spectrum, there are believers at all various stages in their Christian walk, right? There are new believers who are young in their faith, uh, and there are those who have matured in their faith. And so, you know, some new believer may not give all the visible indications in their life uh, of, of being a strong Christian, all right? And so we have to be careful uh, in our judgment of that. Uh, we can, as believers though, uh, we'll know people by the fruit of their lives, right? Uh, you know, uh, especially for walking in, in line and in touch with the Holy Spirit, we will display and demonstrate the very what? What does the Spirit do in us that we would demonstrate? Galatians 5, thank you, Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit. So, so as we yield ourselves to the work of the Holy Spirit in our life, the fruit of the Spirit will begin to come out of us and we will demonstrate that, that to the world around us. Uh, and so that is the church that he says. Now, he goes on to say that the church is uh, both what? Local and universal. All right. He points to several things in pointing that out. He says uh, one that we can see that churches uh, meet in homes. Right. We find that in the early church where uh, even Paul says, greet also the church that meets in their home or in their house. OK. Um, we find uh, that Aquila and Priscilla uh, brought believers into their home. They were considered a church and they met as a church in the home. Why did they why were there house churches in the early church? Where did they no, go? Yeah, but there, were, there really weren't no churches. Okay, there was no church. The church had, was the, the church was just rising up, right? And so now the assembly before that would have been considered what? They would have met where? Where did Paul go all the time to, to witness? Okay, he would go to the synagogue, all right? And so as Christians, when they have kind of come out of the Jewish faith and now they have become believers in Christ... The connection is not there, right? And they're not welcome. Paul, Paul is being dragged out of synagogues, right? Uh, and being dragged out of town. So they're meeting house to house for the, for the aspect of, of coming together as a church. Uh, the church can also be seen as a, a group of believers in a what? In a city, right? Uh, we find that over and over again through the letters of Paul when he addresses uh, the churches that he is writing to. We, we find that in 1 Corinthians to the, to the church of God in Corinth, right? Uh, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. We find that 2 Corinthians uh, as well uh, where Paul writes to the believers in Corinth. Uh, he writes to the believers in Thessalonica. He addresses all of those letters to a, to a church and it would be all believers, all true believers within that city that he is addressing, okay? And so he's doing that. Uh, church can also be seen in a region, all right? Uh, we see that he brought up Acts 9.31 and said the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. So it was a whole region that he is giving and saying that this is the church. All right, then he says the church universal. 
right? Uh, he's, and he goes back to the Ephesians 5 passage as he brings that out, that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Um, and then he goes to the 1 Corinthians passage about God gifting the church. But when we talk about church universal, what is he talking about? Okay. Everywhere. Everywhere. Okay. So all across this world. All right. So we are the church. All right. We are the church here uh, at Scotts Hill. So this would be a church. We are also a part of all true believers in the city of Wilmington. We are also a group of believers in the area of the Carolinas. We would that be regional, right? But we are also part of the universal church because we make up the same body of Christ that people in, in the other parts of the world, whether it's Africa or, or Japan or China or wherever they may be, uh, we make up a part of that universal church. So the church is local, it's universal in its way. He, um, he then goes on to give several metaphors that come out of Scripture uh, as it relates to the church. Um, what was, what was uh, the one that he dealt the most with? He, he talked about the church being a what? A, a family, all right? Uh, he, dealt the, he, he, he dealt the most time uh, and gave the most attention to that where we are considered a family. We, we consider ourselves brothers and sisters in Christ, right? Uh, we are one as a family. We, we walk alongside each other as a family in that way. So he gives several passages, 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2, where he says, Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, right? Older women as mothers and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Uh, Ephesians 3.14 is a passage he, he gave us there. For this reason, I kneel before the Father. Okay, uh, so God is our Father in that way. Uh, he says, I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters, uh, says the Lord Almighty. Uh, Matthew 12, 49 through 50, pointing to the disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And then in 1 John, if anyone has material possessions and sees his brother or sister, all right? So he's not talking about the general public there. He's talking about those who are within the body of Christ, that we are to, one, care for the needs of one another. All right. Uh, when he goes into the one another's of Scripture, it's really basically talking about the, the church, that we are to encourage one another, that we're to spur one another on to love and good deeds, that we're to live out the one another's as a family together. And so he spent a lot of time in that way. Um, he also said that we uh, are considered the bride of Christ, right? The bride of Christ. All right. He says, um, uh, uh, looking at that, that that Christ is the groom and, and, and even Christ referred to himself, you know, when he's talking and, and a group comes to him and says, hey, why don't your disciples, you know, uh, wash up and do this? Or why don't they fast? You know, why aren't they fasting when we're fasting? He says, you don't fast while the bridegroom's with you. and There'll be time enough for that later. Uh, remember that passage. So he refers to himself as the bridegroom and the bride being his followers or his disciples. And so we see the bride of Christ. We also see that um, the church is referred to as the what of Christ? The body of Christ, all right? Uh, he alluded to that in two different ways, right? 
Uh, one, he pointed to the interde interdependence of believers together, making up the body of Christ. And he gave the reference there of first, uh, of first Corinthians chapter 12, right? Where we are the body and all of us have a certain function, right? You may be an ear, you may be a toe, you may be an arm, you may be the mouth, whatever, but we all make up this body of Christ. We are interdependent upon one another. But in looking at the body of Christ as well, we find that he also refers to Christ as the what? The head, all right, of the body. Uh, and, and so, you know, he points to both of these things when he looks at, uh, at the body of Christ, where uh, the church is seen as the entire body and then where Christ is seen in the head. And then all things come into submission under the authority and the headship of Christ in that way. And so he gave passages talking about the headship, Ephesians chapter 1, 22 through 23, Ephesians chapter 4, 15 and 16, um, Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of Him who is the head, and that is Christ. Uh, Colossians 2.19, they have lost connection with the head, meaning Christ, from whom the whole body is supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews and grows as God causes it to grow. What were some other metaphors that He gave us as we think about the church? He says that we are the what and he is the what? Branches and, vine. Branches and vine. All right. We go to John chapter five when we think about that, that, you know, uh, that he is the vine. We are the branches and we are to abide in him. Right. Uh, and, and as we abide in him as branches and him being the vine, it says that we will produce what? Fruit. Fruit. And apart from him, we can do Nothing, right? All right, so the branches and the vine. It says uh, he alludes to us as, as an olive tree, right? Uh, a field of crops, all right? Uh, as, as priest, a, a royal priesthood that he has called together. Uh, we are uh, part of God's house that is being built up with who is the foundation? As Christ is our foundation. So there are many, many metaphors that are used when we think about the church uh, in the scripture, uh, he goes on to say that no one metaphor completely describes the church, but each uh, contributes to us having a fuller and deeper understanding of the benefits and the blessings uh, that are included in being involved with a church. If you think about that aspect and how the headship of Christ, the body of Christ, the, the vine of Christ, how has being involved in the church, the local church for you, what are the blessings uh, that have come from you being a part of a congregation and a local body of believers? Accountability. Okay, the accountability that comes from brothers and sisters walking together, all right? That is that spurring one another on, all right? Anything else? Okay, fellowship of, of like-minded people, uh, people who are on the same path, on the same journey in life. Okay, encouragement from one another. Okay, any other blessings that you've experienced from being part of the body of Christ? Knowledge. All right, growing in, in knowledge and maturity. Okay, uh, coming to be able to, to come to this. 
uh, a class and to be with a group of people where you get into God's Word together and you grow and, and you, you move along together. Those are blessings that come from being involved in the life of the church. Uh, I can remember in my early 20s, um, after rough patches of my life and, and, and uh, coming to, to difficult places and my dad, uh, we were having a conversation one time and he said, you know, he said, you, you will have many friends in the, in the world. And he said, but I'll tell you this, the, the friends that you have in Christ will always be your friends. And I watched that play out in my parents' lives for years and years and years because the relationships that they had formed in church, the friends that they had come around and, and shared life with, it, are, it, it was those people who were there for them in their difficulties, who walked beside them when parents died, who walked beside them when, when a child died, who walked beside them in all kinds of difficult moments. And so you find in this fellowship of believers people who will undergird you and support you and sometimes carry you uh, when your burden gets too heavy to bear, right? So there are great benefits from being involved in the local body. Um, he goes on then and he talks about the church and Israel, all right? And this would probably be one of the sections that would maybe be the most confusing to us as we kind of dig into this. But he, um, he laid out the church in Israel and he uh, talked about that and he laid out uh, and saying uh, and giving us three different views. And he, first he talked about a dispensational view, all right? Uh, and in that there were two distinct plans for Israel and the church, okay? Two distinct plans. There were blessings for, um, for Israel, for the Jewish people, and then there that would be realized on earth, and then there would be heavenly blessings for church that would be realized in heaven. And the understanding for the dispensational view was that the church was not established until Pentecost. All right? Now, based on what we've looked at earlier, that the church is all believers, all true believers of what time? All time of what he earlier alluded to, okay? So the dispensational view would say that the church didn't start until the New Testament. Now, now, as we think about that and we even think about the New Testament writers that he gave reference to, they alluded, and one was Stephen, right? Uh, they alluded to the, the Old Testament saints as being the what? The church. And so one of the things that comes against this and lends itself more to the traditional view is that even the writers of the New Testament looked at the church, at the Old Testament saints as being the church, all right? They, they were believers based upon their faith, right? They had a faith in God and their faith was credited to them as righteousness and they were looking to the promise that was to come. They were all looking for that promise, and they followed God in that way. He then said that there was a now more modern, progressive dispensational view that held a single purpose for Israel and the church, and that was what? The establishment of the kingdom of God, all right? The establishment of the kingdom of God. Uh, distinction between Israel and the church, uh, there's distinction between Israel and the church in the future eternal state, all right? And that's what, he, that's what he's alluding to. Old Testament prophecies concerning Israel are still being fulfilled today. Do you feel, do you feel that's true? Yes. 
Okay, some of you feel like the Old Testament prophecies are still being fulfilled in this day. And it says some prophecies will still be fulfilled in the millennium by ethnic Jewish people. All right. Now, the, the difference between the progressive and the, the primary dispensational view is what? Dispensational, distinct plans. The progressive dispensational view, a single purpose and plan, right? For the church uh, and Israel, okay? Uh, he then alludes to the traditional um, non-dispensational view, right? A non-dispensational view. And it says that the church includes Old Testament believers and New Testament believers in one church and one body, right? In one church and one body. Uh, he goes back to the Ephesians chapter 5, 25 passage that Christ gave himself up for the church, meaning all believers of all time. Um, he looks to Romans chapter 2, 28 and 29 in that, that a person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical, but a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the what? By the Spirit, all right? By the Spirit, not by written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. So it says that we now have become grafted into the vine, right? We have become, as a Jew, God's people by faith in what? In Jesus Christ, right? So now we are brought into the family of God by our faith, all right? And the blessing of Abraham that goes all the way back to Genesis where God says that he is going to bless Abraham and make him a father of many nations is, is fulfilled in the fact that people are coming to faith in Jesus Christ from where? All over the world, right? Exactly. And so that's what he is pointing to when he looks at this traditional position. It says, No indication of any distinctive plan for Jewish people ever to be saved apart from inclusion in one body of Christ, the church, right? So there's one way to be saved, right? We're coming up on John chapter 14 this week, right? There's one way. And what's the way? It's Jesus Christ, all right? It's Jesus Christ. And so he is the way, the truth, and the life. And so uh, no man comes to the Father but through uh, Jesus Christ. It says this mystery in Ephesians 3, 6 is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and shares together in the promise of Christ Jesus. And so that is the traditional dispensational view. All right? Now, I may not have all the answers, but what, what stood out as you read that section of the book? Anything that stood out to you? How many of you may have grown up with a teaching of a dispensational view? Okay. All right. Uh, probably, you know, if you've grown up in, in Southern Baptist world for any number of years, uh, you probably came out of some teaching that held a dispensational view. Um, I can remember as a teenager, our pastor 
laying out a chart as long as his office and walking through all of this stuff, all right? And as Pastor Phil kind of walked through Revelation, he talked about the charts, right? Uh, and so, you know, those were dispensational views of the end times. And so, you know, a lot of us were brought up with that understanding of seeing the distinction between Israel and the church, okay? Grudem is falling into the camp of saying that there is one body that the church is Israel and all believers of all time, okay? Uh, moving on, the good parts, all right? Uh, he talks about the marks of the, of the church or distinguishing characteristics. Uh, he says that there are true churches and there are what churches? False churches, right? All right? Uh, and so we see uh, that there are true and false churches. Uh, churches uh, in this world. Um, I'm trying to get on y'all sheets so that I don't, uh, I know I gave y'all blanks and I want to make sure I get that right. Um, so in that, he gave a couple of, of confessions, the Augsburg, Augsburg Confession, uh, where it defined the church as the congregation of the saints in which the what is rightly taught. Gospel. Right, The gospel is rightly taught and the sacraments are rightly administered. Uh, John Calvin went on to say, whenever we see the word of God purely preached and heard, we see the sacraments and see the sacraments administered according to Christ's institution. There is not to be doubted a church exists. Okay. So then the question came, how do we recognize a true church? Okay. What were the things that he said, give us an indication of a true church and, and, Augsburg Confession and Calvin just laid it out. First thing is what? The word is what? Rightly preached. All right. Rightly preached, rightly taught. All right. And so the word of God is handled correctly. The second thing that would be a distinction and mark of a true church would be that what? Okay, the right administration of the sacraments, which for us as, as Baptists, we usually don't use the word sacrament. We use the word our ordinances, right? And when we refer to the, to the ordinances of the church, we are referring to two things. And what are those two things? Baptism and the Lord's Supper. That's exactly right. And so, you know, those are the things that will set apart a true church. Now, uh, he went on to say that the preaching of God's word rightly handled and then the, the right use of the sacraments, the right administration of the sacraments uh, also gave us this aspect of a, of a what? Membership what? Control, right? How does, how does the right administration of the sacraments and the ordinances give us membership control? What do we hold with our ordinances? One, we don't baptize unless you have what? Okay, professed your faith in Jesus Christ, all right? We don't, we don't have an open communion or Lord's Supper in the sense that anyone can come in and take it. It is reserved for who? For believers, all right? Uh, it is reserved for the church. And so uh, in our church, right, we tie baptism, all right, to church membership, all right? We don't want to see people coming into the church and, and following and making a profession of faith and not understanding the importance of church membership. So we don't want to baptize someone and send them out into the world and being a spiritual orphan. 
They deserve to be part of a local congregation and family. So we want to tie the two together. And so when someone comes and they profess their faith in Jesus Christ, one of the things that we help them understand is it's important for them to be engaged and involved in a local body of believers and become a member in the church. What does membership in the church give us the ability to do? It does help us control, but what else does it help us do? What does it give, what does it give your elders the capacity to do? Discipline, all right, gives the capacity to discipline, gives the, uh, the ability as shepherds to, to walk in accountability with the, with the flock, okay, to come alongside someone. Uh, and, and even in the accountability, and, and Kyle, you said the accountability, even in the accountability and in the church discipline, the whole purpose in that is for what? It's not punitive, is it? <laughs> the whole purpose of coming alongside and walking with somebody in such a way is for restoration so that they would come back and center their life in Christ and move forward and grow toward maturity. And so it gives us that ability as, as shepherds in that way. Uh, but he kind of walks through those things. Now, uh, in that, uh, he talked about true and false churches of today. All right. Uh, so would there be false churches today? Okay. Uh, what would be some of the false churches today? Okay, so he, he pointed out the Jehovah's Witness. He pointed out the Mormon church. All right, and what was, the, what was the sticking point? Why are they not churches? What do they not handle rightly? Okay, all right. They deny salvation and faith and faith alone, right? All right, what, what is another major denomination that's not blanketed could be said would be a false church, but in a lot of ways is a false church depending on church to church. Okay, and, and, and why would they be considered a false church? Okay, promoting a works-based salvation, all right? We're earning our way to heaven. We've got to work our way to heaven. And so we understand by, by what we know in the gospel that salvation comes through faith and faith what? Alone. All right. It's faith in Jesus Christ. It's his work on the cross that brings me into a saving faith. It's not because of anything I have done. And praise God that it's not because of anything I've ever done. Uh, because I could never merit my salvation nor the love of God in my life. But God in His love for me sent Jesus Christ and He died while I was still a sinner. He died so that I could have life and have it eternal. So, you know, there are those. Now, he went on to say, are there some false churches that would be Protestant churches in our world today? Okay. What, what would a, a Protestant church uh, would be considered a false church if they are what? Okay, we're going back to these same two things, right? All right, not preaching the Bible, not handling the gospel correctly, uh, not leading their people to believe that God's word is what? Truth. <laughs> Uh, and, and the inerrancy. Okay, inerrancy. That, that they can't lean on it. They can't believe the Bible. So when they're not looking at God's word to be true, then they cannot be considered a true church. All right. So they've got to handle the word of God correctly. And so we look at this aspect of true and false churches. Um, 
It's, it's interesting, and, and, and I praise God for this, but it's interesting, one of the things that we hear more and more and more when we talk to people who are coming to be a part of Scotts Hill Baptist Church, the thing that we're hearing over and over and over again is that I was drawn because the truth is being taught. I was drawn because the truth is being taught. I praise God for that because, uh, you know, we're, we're handling the gospel correctly and rightly. And our pastor is preaching the word of God with boldness and clarity in that way. And so we praise God that people are looking for truth. Uh, they're looking for truth uh, in, in their lives. Uh, he then goes on and talks about the purity and the unity of the church. Um, he says that there are more pure and less pure churches, right? Uh, when he talks about the purity of the church, what is he alluding to? The purity of the church, the definition that you got there. It should be italicized. Okay. Freedom from wrong doctrine and conduct. All right. Uh, and its degree of conformity to God's revealed will for the church. And so, you know, as we look at that, um, evidence of a church that is more pure. All right. He gave nine things that gave us evidence that the church is pure and, and being led rightly. And those things were right doctrine. <laughs> we're going back to those main two. Right doctrine and the proper use of the sacraments or, or the ordinances. Uh, right use of church discipline. Uh, genuine worship, uh, effective prayer, effective witness, uh, personal holiness of life among members, uh, care for the poor, and love for Christ. All right? Uh, and so those were the evidences of a more church. Now, uh, we can see from the scriptures that there's clear evidence that some churches are more pure than others. Okay? It was true in the New Testament times. It's true today. All right? What were some of the examples of, of the more pure church uh, as we look in God's Word? What were the pure churches? <laughs> Who gave Paul the greatest joy? Okay, the church at Philippi and the church at Thessalonica. Uh, you know, he gave them praise uh, for the way that they were living and the way that they were following after Christ and the way that they were generous in their, in their things. So he talked about them and they gave evidence of all these things uh, being lived out in their lives. Uh, what were the churches that would have been considered less poor? I mean, less, less pure, poor, less pure. Corinth. Corinth. <laughs> Boy, we got two whole letters on that, didn't we? All uh, right. Uh, so Corinth would have been one that was less pure. Now, it's interesting to note when we talk about that uh, and we think about more pure and less pure. Uh, I mean, with all the junk that was going on in Corinth, he still referred to them as what? Believers. As believers. All right. Uh, still referred to them as believers. And, you know, he's, he's saying, you know, such were some of you, but you got to come out of that. Right. So he's still, he's admonishing, but he's encouraging. He's admonishing, but he's encouraging them in their walk with Christ, all right? Uh, but he looks at Galatia. What was the problem with the church at Galatia? They were turning from the true gospel of salvation by faith and faith alone in Jesus Christ, and they were turning back to what? 
they were turning back to works, all right? And so, you know, they were less pure. They didn't have that understanding. So uh, we see this uh, thing about the purity of the church, of being more pure and less pure in those ways. Uh, when you, you know, I think for, and I think in the personal reflection question, some of the things, it gives you opportunity to, to reflect on our church and, and to kind of hold up and, and put the magnifying glass and saying, how are we doing uh, in some of those things, okay? So as we look at, um, you know, the evidences of a right church, uh, granted, there are some things that some churches are going to be stronger in, all right? And some things that they may be weaker in, all right? Uh, sometimes the characteristic of the church will take on the characteristic of their shepherd, right? Uh, and if he is a strong evangelist, the characteristic of the church most of the time is they have a strong evangelistic bent. If he's a strong teacher, they'll have a strong uh, foundation in doctrine and these things. So there's sometimes this kind of wave of where they are in looking at the degree of uh, freedom from wrong doctrine and conduct. But it's all coming uh, into the conformity of God's will for the church. Uh, he then talks about the unity of the church. Uh, the unity of the church. And he says that the unity of the church is its degree of freedom, its degree of freedom from what? Divisions, all right? Among true Christians, Jesus' goal is that we will be what? One. We'll be one, all right? That we will be one, all right? Um, and so the unity of church is, is this freedom from divisions. Uh, Unity is encouraged uh, that we would be one, that we would walk with one spirit, that we would walk together in unity, that uh, we would be a witness to the world by the way that we interact with others. Um, how many of you have been parts and, and seen demonstrated divisiveness within the church before? Okay, all right. You know, for, for me... Uh, growing up in church and, and my dad came to faith in Christ just a couple years before I was born. All because of a preacher who walked the neighborhood every day and as dad was helping build the house that they were building 60 years ago, the preacher would come by and talk to him and witness to him and dad would sling paint on him and stuff hoping he wouldn't come back the next day, but he would. And because of Richard Sharp, my dad came to faith in Jesus Christ and so I was in church nine months before I was born, all right? Uh, but that didn't always tend to be a good thing because I saw things in church that led me away from church. Uh, as a child and as a, as a 12-year-old and coming up, uh, I had come to faith in Christ, but I began to see division in the church. And I began to see leaders of the church in cuss fights in the parking lot. I began to see racism in the church in ways that I shouldn't have seen. And, and I walked away as a teenager thinking, if that's what this is about, I don't want any part of it. God has called us to walk together in unity. Now, do we always agree? No, but there's a proper way to work through disagreement and conflict. And there's an improper way to work through disagreement and conflict. Conflict is natural. It's going to happen. It happens in every relationship that you have, all right? It's how we deal with conflict that makes all the difference. 
And so, you know, God has come and he has called us to be one and he encourages us to walk in unity. Our walking in unity is one of our greatest witnesses to the world around us. When the world looks upon a church that cannot get along with itself, it is a poor witness to the world around us. And so it's important that even in disagreement that we walk together in love and unity and we walk together in forgiveness and we move forward in those things. Uh, when is unity, he, he goes on to say that sometimes unity is just not possible. When is unity not possible? He gave several, he gave a couple of scripture passages, but he says that we are not to be yoked with what? Okay, unbelievers. So, so unity is impossible when, when it deals with an unbeliever, right? Uh, we cannot really be unified when we are of the Spirit and they are of the world. And right, there's, there's no unity there. He says that unity sometimes is impossible too when there is sin in the church, right? And so when there may be an unrepentant brother or sister within the church and church discipline maybe have to be used, that brother or sister has to be what? Paul says, you know, you know, brother, sister is put out, all right, uh, of the church. Uh, they are put out and they're treated like what? An unbeliever because they're not showing any evidence. If, if, if a believer is confronted with sin, what should we do? We should rep confess and repent, all right? That should be our heart to, for someone to gently come and lead us back into a proper relationship with Christ. The tendency is, is that sometimes when there's an unrepentant brother or sister in Christ, it really leads and points us to the evidence that maybe they were never truly saved, right? Remember we said that in the visible church there are some that are in it that really aren't part of it. And that is true. And sometimes when there's an unrepentant brother or sister, unity is just not uh, possible in that way. Uh, he goes on to say that unity in the church does not mean a worldwide church government. And why is that not possible or why? You know, he, he goes on to say that different denominations and ministries are not necessarily a mark of divisiveness. You know, sometimes we think, why just can't we be one big happy church? All right. Uh, it, it may be that God's plan is this because it protects us uh, in such a way. Uh, if there was one church-wide worldwide church government, he says that there would inevitably be cor corruption, right? Inevitably, be, inevitably, I can't say the word, but there's going to be corruption, all right? Um, and so, uh, you know, God in his, in his own way has set it up with different denominations, different churches, uh, autonomous in nature, so that uh, we are one in Christ, but it doesn't lead to corruption within the body of Christ, Okay. Um, he goes on to give us the purposes of the church, uh, and he says that there are three. Uh, and he says the first is ministry to God, and what is our ministry to God? All right, it's worship. All right, uh, the church's purpose is to worship uh, God, and. Um, and, and, to, and to worship Him. He gives passages of singing song, songs and, and hymns and spiritual songs um, of coming before Him uh, with praise and thanksgiving and adoration. And so we come to worship. Uh, is worship just singing? No. 
Uh, worship is an all-inclusive thing of our life, right? So as we come into the presence of God and we, and we pray, we are worshiping. As we, as we lift our voices in song, we are worshiping. As we rightly divide the Word of God, we are worshiping. And so all of those are aspects of the Word of God. And as we uh, give Him glory that is due His name. He also says that uh, we have a ministry to believers, and that is to what? Okay, to nurture, all right? Uh, so we can go back to that passage of spurring one another on to love and good deeds, all right? Uh, as we find in Hebrews, that we are to come alongside, we're to assemble together for that purpose, that we would grow to maturity in our walk and our faith in Jesus Christ. So I am to walk beside you. I am to encourage you. I am to help you, nurture you in your faith. Uh, we talked about a few weeks back about the sanctification process and it not being just this upward process, right? But there are seasons in our life where we drop down or we hit a plateau. It's in those moments that we need the church to come around us to help push us through and sometime carry us through to help us get to the other side so that we can continue to grow into maturity and into the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we need one another, all right? Um, that's difficult at times, isn't it? Nurturing and encouraging one another in our walk in this aspect of accountability is sometimes not easy because it means that we must at times be open and transparent with a brother or sister in Christ. And sometimes openness and transparency is not easy, right? Because we see the wickedness of our own heart. And we see the darkness that is still there. And we know the work that God and Christ is still having to do in us. And so it's difficult sometimes to be able to acknowledge the fact that, hey, I ain't got it all together, but I need you. I need you to encourage me. I need you to nurture me. I need you to pray for me. I need you to hold me accountable. I need you to ask me the question of how are you doing in your spiritual life? You know, what is God showing you in those ways? So we nurture uh, believers so that we can grow up in the maturity of our faith. He then goes on to say that there's ministry to the world and that ministry to the world is seen in what? Okay, evangelism and and mercy, all right? Uh, the evangelistic work of declaring the gospel, he said, is the primary work and ministry uh, that the church has toward the world. That's our responsibility. Uh, Jesus, Matthew 28, 18 and 19 and 20, right? He gives us the Great Commission. that we're to go, All authority has been given into His hands. And He says, go. Uh, go and make disciples of all nations, Right? Uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all these things that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So He has commissioned us and given us the orders that we would take the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world around us. And so that's our primary responsibility. But in addition to, to that, uh, we are to have mercy ministry where we care for the poor and the needy. We care for... Uh, the orphan, we care for the widow, we care for the prisoner, uh, all in the name of the Lord, all right? But he says that mercy ministries should never do what? Become substitute for evangelism. Okay, become a substitute for our evangelistic uh, purpose and ministry. Uh, and so we need to do those things. Um, he then goes on and he talks about keeping all of these things in balance, all right? He says a strong church will have effective ministry in all three areas, in worship, 
in nurturing one another toward maturity and helping each other grow in their relationship with Christ and evangelism and care for the world around us, all right? Um, but it's going to look different. And like I said earlier, some churches are going to be stronger in some areas than others. That's why at times <laughs> you have to turn the fire up in different areas, right? How are we doing, how are we doing in taking care of the poor and needy, okay? We need to do better with that. We've become kind of, our, 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 our attention and our eyesight has been drawn to this area. Maybe it's inward. So now we need to, to lift our head up and look outward. How do we care and impact people uh, with, with care in our community and in the process engage them with the gospel of Jesus Christ in the hopes that they come to a saving faith in Him? You know, maybe, you know, maybe it's not that. Maybe it's this aspect of, you know, how do we, how do we help our people uh, grow in their understanding of what it looks like to worship? So maybe we need to turn the heat up a little bit and, and we need to spark our people on to what it means to and understand, help them understand what it means to worship and give glory to God in their lives in that way. So it's going to look different because God has gifted us by the power of His Holy Spirit with different gifts. I mean, if we took a poll of everybody in this room, we would all have different giftedness. And he's done that on purpose uh, because we all have different gifts, but we all make up one body and we're all as equally important in fulfilling the function of the church uh, that he has called us to be. And so you use your giftedness and I use mine. And so, you know, you just, you live out what God's calling is in your life. And you can't wait on the next person to do it. So if God has gifted you with the gift of hospitality, what do you do? You open up your home, right? If He's gifted you with the gift of evangelism, then you take every opportunity you can to be introducing people to, 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 to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is he, if He's gifted you with the gift of generosity, then you use the very things that He has blessed you with to pour into the ministries of the church so that the gospel can go forth into the community and the world around us. And so we use our gifts in different ways. And as we all utilize our gifts in the way in the, that God has gifted us, then we will be balanced in what we are as a church and living out those purposes in the world around us. So... Church is great and important. Church was very vital and important in my life, even though there were years that I walked away from it. Well, I kind of walked away. I still got drugged to church as a teenager, but the impact that it had on me had kind of lost its effect for a while. Uh, and, uh, but the church is very important. And the greatest thing about it is even in my life, when I came to a crisis and I came to the end of myself, I knew where to return to. I knew where to go. And I knew that even though the church had all kind of flaws and it had all kind of flawed people, that I wasn't responsible for anybody else but me. And I knew that the church held the answers for my life because it was found in Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And so that is our hope. And that is what we share. And so we come together from different walks and different backgrounds with one purpose and one Lord. And we go out as the church as a witness to the world around us. That's the nature of the church, and we praise God for it. We praise God for the fact that He did not save us and leave us to ourselves. Can you imagine trying to walk this journey of faith by yourself? Couldn't do it. We just couldn't do it. We were created and we were saved to live in community, and that's what the church is about. So we praise God for it, and I praise God for Scotts Hill Baptist Church 
and the community of believers that he's brought together here. I praise God that you are part of this body and you're using your gifts and your abilities, your talents to the glory of God in everything that we do. Let's pray. Fathers, we uh, come before you tonight. We thank you for this evening. We thank you for your many blessings. And as I hear the rain, I, I thank you for the rain. And um, uh, Father, you use it to uh, nourish uh, this world that you have given us. And so we thank you for the sun. We thank you for the rain. And we thank you that you will use it um, so that we don't have to turn on our sprinklers in the next couple of days. But uh, Father, we give you praise in that. Tonight, we thank you and we praise you for the church. We thank you that you bring together a diverse group of individuals from all different backgrounds and you unite them in one thing and that's Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray that as we go out of this place as members of a local body that we would be a reflection of who you are and that we would live our lives for you and for your glory. And that as people see us, they will see a difference in us. And they will be drawn to Jesus Christ. Father, may we be mindful that you have sent us into this world to share the hope that we have in Christ with those around us. So would you give us hearts and give us eyes to see and give us a burden for the lost. But more than that, would you give us opportunities to speak of the hope that is found in you. And we pray that you would continue to pour your spirit out upon us in the days ahead. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you very much. God bless you. Have a wonderful night. Thank you for listening. And we hope that this teaching has enriched your understanding of God. If you found this teaching to be helpful, share it with your friends and family on social media and tag us at Scott's Hill. Till next time.